Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Good evening and welcome to the show. Recently, I was contacted by a businessman who had an alarming story about his MyGov portal being hacked. His story went like this. On February 3, he received a message from MyGov telling him that his tax refunds for 2022 and 2021 would soon be deposited in his bank account. What refunds, he thought. He'd long ago submitted his tax return for 2021 and had yet to submit one for 2022. He put it on the back burner for six days, then rang his accountant. She told him there had been nothing submitted on his account. So he jumped onto MyGov and discovered, to his surprise, that someone pretending to be him had submitted an amendment for 2021 and an original return for 2022. The tax agent number they were lodged under was not the same as his accountants. He was now due a return totaling about $12,000. As if that wasn't alarming enough, his bank account details had been changed, presumably to a hacker's bank account, who was at that time, again presumably, sitting back and waiting for the refund to drop. As it happens, the money was transferred that very day. Not to him, but to the mystery bank account. The businessman told me that he, like many non-accountants, had no idea how to submit tax returns, which he left up to his accountant. I then spoke to his accountant, who said she had not made any unauthorised submissions. And you'd have to ask, why would she? She has a busy accounting business. Why risk that and a jail term for a measly $12,000? So she lodged a warning to the Australian tax office and received this reply. The ATO assured her it was looking into this incident. You don't need to take any action, it said. We will contact you if we need anything else. Well, the ATO was also provided the bank account details where the $12,000, that's $12,000 of our money, was deposited. Both the businessman and the accountant assumed this would make nailing the perpetrators an easy job for the ATO. 
A week later, after there had been no word from the ATO, the businessman contacted me. So I wrote to the ATO, giving them all the details I had, including the reference number of the case and the name of the accountant involved. A few days later, I received this. It's a standard form saying the ATO cannot discuss the details of individuals and that if I was worried about cybersecurity, I should change my passwords regularly. Yeah, well, thanks for that. Remember, this is a disturbing experience for the businessman involved. He told me he is now absolutely petrified to do anything online, let alone use his MyGov account. He says that if they, being the hackers, can get into a government system, what else can they get into? So how possible is it that this is a case of hacking? Well, it's highly possible. The ABC reported in December that details from hacked MyGov accounts were being sold online. This makes the Australian Taxation Office's nonchalance in this instance even more galling. How much of this is happening under the ATO's nose? It's difficult to say. One taxation expert told me that 80% of the returns processed by the ATO never pass before a human's eyes. As long as the tax return doesn't stray outside normal parameters for that particular taxpayer's industry, the whole thing is handled by computers. Hackers would know this and modify their embezzlements accordingly. I contacted Steve Morgan, founder of market researcher Cybersecurity Ventures and editor-in-chief of Cybercrime magazine based in New York. He said, quote, in my opinion, every organization on the planet has been or will be hacked. There is no such thing as an impenetrable system. Look no further than blockchain-powered crypto exchanges. Well, he's right there. Here's a graph from a Twitter account called Chain Analysis, or Chainalysis, I should say, showing the amount of money hackers stole from decentralized finance, in other words, cryptocurrencies, during just one 10-day period last year. The hackers got away with $718 million. These people are raking in fortunes, which is something you can't say for the good guys, the cybersecurity industry, which is struggling to both fill IT security jobs and keep up with the hackers' latest tricks. So if digital IDs are vulnerable, why have MyGov at all? Morgan said, quote, of course you hope for the best and there's a lot of optimism, but there's also a lot of risk. Privacy issues and ultimately citizen pushback. Digital IDs are as necessary as any expert says they are and as unnecessary as any other expert says. If and when any country moves to digital IDs, which seems inevitable and just a matter of timing, then they've painted a target on themselves. That doesn't mean a country should not go digital, but, and this is the important bit, it could be a setup for a record-breaking hack. End of quote. 
There are signs that Australia might be safer than most in this department. Morgan's Magazine, as it happens, recently gave Claire O'Neill, Australia's first federal minister for cybersecurity, its 2022 Cybersecurity Person of the Year Award, mostly for her response to the eye-wateringly large hacks on Optus and Medibank Private last year. Each of those affected about 10 million customers. The magazine said, quote, for her success in escalating the importance of cybersecurity in Australia's national dialogue, her steadfast determination to drive real change after the devastating Optus and Medibank breaches, and her role as a global cybersecurity thought leader, Cybercrime cyber Magazine is proud to present Claire O'Neill with the 2022 Cybersecurity Person of the Year Award." End of quote. O'Neill outlined her ambitious agenda during a National Press Club address in December. She said, quote, "'We need to prepare for more major cyber attacks over the coming years as we undertake this important work. The truth is, we are unnecessarily vulnerable. For the first time, Australia will punch back at the hackers through a collaboration between the Australian Federal Police and Australian Signals Directorate. This will be a 100-person team permanently focused on hunting down, hunting down people seeking to hack our systems and hacking back. She went on, I want Australia to be the world's most cyber security secure country by 2030. And I believe that is possible, end of quote. Well, she outlined the, outlined the details of those plans in her speech, but she also divulged in an interview with Cybercrime magazine, some of her other priorities. Something I see um, having great success, bearing great fruit um, in government organisations and business in Australia is a real expansion of thinking about what cyber expertise might look like. And I see lots of companies that are taking people who don't particularly have a technology background and giving them great training in management and assessment of risk and all of those bits and pieces that maybe don't require a degree in engineering or something along those lines. Um, you know, great um, opportunities to bring women into the cyber workforce, to bring neurodiverse people into the cyber workforce. Bring women into the cyber workforce? Neurodiversity? What relevance do woke tropes like those have to cyber security? This week, all states and territories agreed to share their state-based IDs so we can use our driver's licenses and professional credentials, among other things, across state borders. This was seen as a huge step forward by all the politicians involved. This is the holy grail, New South Wales Digital Minister Victor Dominello told the Financial Review. Well, you can say that again. With all our information in one central portal, it's now the holy grail for hackers too. The weird thing is we were never asked whether we want this. Like so many things these days, our elected politicians have simply decided that it's good for us. My guest tonight is South Australian Senator Alex Antich, who says digital IDs are the thin end of the wedge for Big Brother's ability to watch and control our behaviour. Alex, welcome to the show. 
Thanks, Fred. Thanks for having me. It's great to be back. Yes, good to see you back here too, Alex. Now, first, let's talk about hacking. We're told that our digital IDs are as secure as they can be, but how secure are they? Well, I'm glad you said that because I've got a, a nice long bridge over your city that I'm going to sell you if you believe that or anyone <laughs> that believes that, frankly. It's going cheap. Uh, and uh, it is one of the great myths, isn't it, about about um, electronic communications, databases, and uh, you know, th- our, our data being stored online effectively. It's never safe. It just cannot be safe. And we've seen example after example after example of that. Um, everyone says the same thing. Trust me, I'm from the government. Well, um, call me a cynic, but uh, I've seen too many examples of data going awry. We had a couple here in South Australia where people's SA Gov, you know, the MyGov equivalent site was hacked and, and emails and uh, driver's licence data and everything was sent out everywhere and people were getting, I mean, I actually know a few people who it happened to. So, look, this data is never safe. And the more centralised it becomes, the bigger honeypot it becomes for hackers. And, um, there's some real problems with this type of uh, operation, I reckon. Yeah, let's get on to how the government should respond in a second. But firstly, how catastrophic would it be if one of our bigger systems was hacked? Look, I think we've seen examples of that through the private sector, haven't we, through Optus and uh, Medicare. Um, And, of course, we're talking about limited data sets in a sense there. In the case of health insurers, though, you've got some pretty sensitive documentation information about treatments people might have had, things they may not want people to know, um, but also tax file numbers and, you know, potentially credit card information. So even in that one little subset, you've got some problems there with that being hacked. And of course, we know how clever and advanced and sophisticated data identity theft, you know, crooks are now. They'll use that information for reasons that we haven't even thought of four times down the chain. But there are people out buying gift cards with stolen IDs so they can kind of convert credit into another form of usable credit, all sorts of things that we haven't thought about. And that's just with one little subset, you know, be it a phone company or a healthcare provider. Um, The problem arises, I think, is when you start collating data from all sorts of spheres all in the one database. That's what I'm really worried about. Well, apparently the Australian Taxation Office deals with 3 million hacking attempts per month which is a small change compared to what the National Australia Bank deals with. Apparently it gets 50 million attempted hacks per month. What can governments do to fight back against this? We've seen this time and time again, haven't we? The private sector generally does things better when it comes to service provision and delivery of services and that sort of thing. So if the private sector, as you say, I mean, those numbers are quite staggering. If they're getting hit with that many attacks, then... Um, you know, and fending them off, most of them, presumably some of them, maybe not in cases we hear about, maybe there are others. The government's not going to do a better job than the private sector on this sort of, you know, this sort of thing. We see that time and time again. Um, and in fact, there is a, a website, I forget the name of it now, which shows in real time what they say are data attacks going on through the world. And it's like, um, you know, it's like the air traffic control map. It's just going constantly, constantly, constantly. These are not just things that pop up every now. They, they are getting hammered all day, all day, all day, Data breaches are just a simple, unavoidable fact. Uh, And from where I sit, the more data you have collated, um, the more chance you've got of losing that. And I think that's what we're going to see in the future. This this data getting collated and uh, into one central system, that is a massive worry. Well, we've just seen this week that the uh, the state digital uh, ministers have agreed to keep all to collate their uh, our our state based 
uh, mm. IDs so that we can use our driver's licenses across various state borders and so on. But as you say, mm. I mean, if you make one big honeypot, then that's, uh, that's a huge um, uh, temptation to the hackers. Isn't it best to mm. just keep people's uh, ID and information in smaller groups, in smaller places? Yeah, I think it absolutely is, and that's sort of what we've been doing up to now. Of course, what's being proposed through this digital ID style policy is really what will effectively become a giant central database for, for, for this sort of data. It's not being said at the moment. At the moment, this concept is being pitched on the lines of having um, this sort of net around the government services. So, oh, we've got all these different services, like you've described, in different states. Um, let's all have them under the one system, give everyone an ID number, uh, and then it'll all be a lot easier. And these things are always sold on the, um, you know, the sort of the hook of convenience, safety and security. And of course, very often they're nothing of the sort. So this digital ID framework is, is being rolled out all across the world. The Australian model as it was, and there was a bill that was before the last parliament, um, mirrored very, very closely the pitch that the WEF, the World Economic Forum, have been making um, across the world in all countries. Um, when I hear those three letters together, WEF, I start to my ears prick up, Fred, and I start to say, "Hang on a minute, let's let's just let's just think about this a bit more." Um, that bill is going to come back very, very soon in a revised, presumably even more draconian, um, uh, you know, sort of model. Um, and I don't think Aussies, and I'm not sure politics is across this yet, but this is a very, very worrying future we're setting up for ourselves. Yes, this is the other side of this issue, and that is not just the, the vulnerability to attacks or hacks, but the potential for our politicians or our bureaucracy to use it to control us. Now, you know, if you and I had been talking about this three or four years ago, people would have laughed at us as, yeah. as conspiracy theorists, but we have seen very vividly the tyrannical tendencies of our bureaucracies, our police forces and our politicians during the so-called COVID lockdown. Um, they, they jumped at the opportunities then when they, had, when they could lock us down and force us to uh, coerce us into taking medical procedures that many of us didn't want to do. What could they do with these digital IDs combined with, as you as you, you, you know where this is going, combined with a central bank mm -hmm. digital currency? Yeah, it's almost like the, uh, the three pincer movement, isn't it? And, and I think it needs to be seen that way. And once again, I don't think politics and people generally are across where this is headed with surveillance, with uh, central bank digital currencies, with digital ID. I, the thing I'm really, really most concerned about is the combination of all of those. And uh, and I make that observation for this reason. You've, you've sort of summed it up quite nicely there. We saw this in COVID, really. We saw the early stages of what this can look like. Uh, and people might well say, oh, well, I trust my government and I don't do anything wrong. So what's the problem? Well, what happens when the bureaucrats get control of the show, the unelected start making decisions that you don't have any uh, any control over and start using this power more more dramatically. And, and that's what we're looking at here, I think, is if we have a, a system that gives you a central ID, uh, and that's really your ticket to using the internet or government services or, you know, collecting your tax return, whatever it might be. Or buying and food. that's tied to a digital... Or, or, just, or just going or to the shops. Food, or, or, that's right. Well, that's right. So that's the point. So so if we if we then ultimately get a digital currency, that, that is no money, no cash, no paper, no nothing, just a digital currency, 
And then on top of that, you have this rise of the surveillance state. So, you know, you might say, well, I walk outside, a, a camera um, recognises my face, facial recognition. Um, I accidentally crossed without pressing the button or something and my social credit score drops. My currency gets frozen. I can't go to the shops and buy food. Uh, and it's all recorded on my digital ID forever and ever to show what a naughty boy I've been. Like, let's get the tinfoil hat out. But that's what happens in China right now. That is the Chinese Communist Party's model. And we saw the beginnings of that with COVID, with the home quarantine app here in South Australia that monitored you to make sure you were at home by sending your photo back to South Australian police headquarters with the QR codes that were never meant to be used for anything else, but the police started using to track other crimes at the same time. Once that power is in the hands of bureaucrats in particular, they never want to let it go for it, ever. And, and that power becomes corrupted over the years, you know, used for different, different, uh, different means. Uh, and ultimately, um, we're left with a very different product than we started with. Even if circumstances where you start with something genuine, what you end up with down the track is very, very different. And that's the big concern here. We're being told, a digit, don't worry, a digital ID for you will be voluntary and uh, you won't, it'll, it'll be your choice. Uh, and we've heard that a couple of times recently soon. So um, I, I, I think people need to be very, very cynical and very sceptical about where this is all headed and they need to let their politicians know. Well, I was just going to get to that. What can ordinary people do to push back against this, Alex? Yeah, and look, I think there's a sense of frustration for people that do understand this because it does feel like we're being led down this alley and there's really no way out of it. Um, but ultimately, I don't believe that. I believe that if politics understands it and the people in parliament understand it, then then it can be um, it can be resisted. So I, I think we have to just, in a very respectful way, make sure our politicians are across these issues, make sure they're aware of it. Um, I find parliament to be... It's almost like the doors of Narnia that open up in the mornings when you walk into to Parliament. I, I feel as though there's things that are being spoken about out on the street that never make it through the Canberra press, press gallery in their, in their almighty form. Uh, they set the tone. We've got to make sure we're telling politicians what we're really talking about on the streets and what we're really worried about. So that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is, I say it again, I've been saying it everywhere, but get involved in politics, get involved in parties, get involved, get into the ear of your parliamentarians if they're your local member and so on. Um, it's just critical. Yeah, well said, Alex. I mean, the, the, the impression that we get on the street is that everyone in Canberra just thinks this is inevitable. And if enough people rose up and said that it's not, then, uh, then perhaps we can change, uh, change the course of this. Alex Andrews, thanks so much for your time. That's South Australian Senator Alex Antich and one of the few voices in Parliament rising up or standing up against digital IDs and the forthcoming central bank digital currencies. Well, that's all from me. Thanks for watching. You'll notice that the ADH lineup is rapidly expanding. Apart from, the, from Alexandra Marshall, we've also got the great Daisy Cousins and from noon tomorrow, Lyle Shelton. If you don't catch them in our regular broadcast, you can find them all on adh.tv. And I'll see you tomorrow night at seven o'clock. Good night.